0: Hi everyone, this is Dave McGilvery, and I am one of Boston's oldest, craziest runners.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of Old Crazy Runners. I'm Nicholas, the oldest of the old crazy runners, and I've got my cousin Fundy, the craziest of the crazy runners.
2: And this week we have Dave McGilvray, the director of the Boston Marathon that, yes, is back in person coming this Monday.
1: I think with the change, the delays, everyone getting out there, this is going to be a, just a supercharged race. It's going to be a really fun one to watch.
2: Yeah, we'll, I'll do some research. I'm sure you can watch it online, but I bet you have to have some subscription to something or other. That's, the, that's just the way things are now.
1: you are got to pay $9.99 to watch anything commercials <laughs>
2: <laughs> gotta pay 9 dollars to watch the stupid McDonald's commercial
1: I gotta pay nine ninety nine to go on to my own Strava link to find out that you are at the top of the leaderboard what is that all about
2: uh, well so okay so obviously no one will ever beat Andy Glaze because uh, he's a robot because he woke up at 12.01 on Monday <laughs> If you want to be number two or number three, if you go out and you're an idiot and run 20 miles on a Monday, that will put you at the top five of the Strava Run Beat group. Well, you had
1: a good reason for running uh, 20 miles on Mondays because you were supposed to run that this weekend and you were uh, kicking it up in Vegas.
2: Yes, I was in Vegas in the sunshine and uh, this old man was staying up till 2 a.m. at uh, nightclubs in Vegas, so. It was a little little hard to run the next day.
1: You know you're old when you call out 2 a.m. You didn't say you <laughs> stayed you up all night. I mean, you, 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 you named the time that you quit.
2: Okay. <laughs> I, Only old people do that. It, that is true. Although the last time I was in that nightclub, uh, I was 49. I remember because it was right before the 50th birthday, which uh, evidently was my fault that coronavirus hit. I shut that club down at 345.
1: Well done. Well, then I have not shut a club down in the entirety of my life. <laughs> I have not. I'll have, to, I'll have to start shifting that to like bingo parlors. Maybe I can get, get a bingo parlor shut down one of these you days. Probably,
2: yeah, you could make it till 945. Shut that bingo parlor down. <laughs>
1: but you still got out there. You ran. You got some, uh, some time on the road.
2: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I pushed it's my uh, Friday there. run to, to Saturday. Oh, man, it was fucking beautiful in Vegas. Went out for a run at like 7.30 in the morning. It was 68 degrees. Everybody was happy. Everybody's smiling. Everybody's run by each other, just waving. Finished my run. Walked a block away. Had some coffee. Had some uh, hipster avocado toast. It was a glorious day. Wow, that sounds fantastic. All that's missing is a Bloody Mary. I mean, you are in Vegas. And then uh, the plan was to run Monday morning. But as we found out, uh, we are in Winter Part duh, here in Oregon. Yeah, was that
1: part of the uh, uh, the six weeks of extra winter? Are we even? I think we're past that. We're past the six week window for the uh, Groundhog Day.
2: I think he, it was three he, months. missed Groundhog it by Day a mile.
1: He's not even close. Like a month So and we a half.
2: woke up to snow on April 11th, and a pretty healthy. I had some employees that couldn't get to the office.
3: Yeah, and three uh, it was of a snow. balmy.
2: 34 degrees with snow on the ground here in Beaverton, Oregon.
1: So we, we, we talk about that as far as the interruption was on Monday. But here is a critical, critical 24-hour difference. One of our favorite races was Bridge to Bruce. Is Bridge to Bruce? I should say. Yeah. And it was one of the first races canceled, if not the first race canceled, in Portland in, for uh, COVID lockdowns in 2020. It was set for early April. All that blew up. So 2020, 2021, they pushed They're out 2022. I mean, we can feel the races that have been not running for two years and the impact that has on them financially. And, uh, had that snow hit on Sunday instead oh, of Monday. And that. it was originally predicted for Sunday and they had to cancel day of three oh, years. It would have crushed them. Uh, would have absolutely crushed them. So, I don't mind that it hit on Monday. It, it was certainly crazy enough, but the fact that it pushed it out that extra day and let us run a
2: glorious bridge to brews uh, made it all worthwhile. Oh, man. And you, uh, you almost got a PR if the, the MAX train tried to, to cut you off, to slow you from your PR. It did. In fact,
1: this is going to uh, bring up one of the topics I have for today. Uh, wanted to touch on... How we can improve our marathon pacing, and uh, I'll, I'll put the link in here. This was pr- pretty interesting read. The one thing, there's a couple things that stood out, and I'll relate it back here, is uh, number, what was it? I'm scrolling down here. Train hard is number three. I was going to highlight. You've been crushing it. Train, uh, number four, run the first half by time and the last half by feel. Okay. And uh, I think that's pretty cool. I would, I, I would, good. I would definitely recommend that you kind of embrace that that thought process. And it really is, you know, set that first half of the race, run that pace, stay on it, and don't start thinking about what you can, uh, how how much burst you have, or what else you can add to that until you get to that second half. And yeah, uh, that's I kind was of how actually, I approached
2: it. Um, you know, we talked. Uh, was it Martha Wright or uh, I can't remember the guest uh, that was on was talking about, you know, the, the pacing stuff, trying to, you know, read a lot about pacing. I think I'm actually for that first half for, you know, they say, you know, first three miles, et cetera. I think I'm going to write the time, like with a Sharpie on my arm. They like, yeah, keep myself honest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you, I, I agree. You got to, you got to really stay with that. And then it's that second half where you can start to feel what you might have in you. And, and, you know, for you in particular, one, I mean, number one on how to improve your pacing is run more marathons. You know, (laughs) learn learn what you can do. Well, I want to know
2: on that list was uh, don't get stuck behind the max train. Is that on there? Because that'll help your pace.
1: I'll tell you what. You know what was worse than the max train is we, oh man, there were some dumb fucks running. (laughs) We we came over the steel bridge. You had to run on the sidewalk. And this is a sidewalk that is two people, maybe two and a half wide. And there's people that are just running as pairs side by side. Just
2: not caring ca- about everybody.
1: Totally else. blocking everybody behind them. Yeah. Making no, Oh, just pay attention to the fact that you're not the only people out here trying to run. And some of us, uh, want to do something a little differently than you do. And you're an impediment.
2: Yeah. I didn't, uh, didn't oh, well, I remember, um, there was a, uh, the winter five k series, kind of the same thing where there was a path and it's winter. So off the path is just a muddy mess. So you just got to be on the path. And there were walkers three wide, and right. I'm like I'm like, Walkers, get the fuck out of the way. Yeah. You
1: well, yeah, you gotta go single file. You can't go yeah, shoulder can't to shoulder at and, and that point. No. Can't can't do that. Actually it was a beautiful day on Sunday. We caught a great weather window. Um, and it was really nice to get out there and push that shorter distance. But you, like you said, had to wait until later in the day on Monday to run your twenty miler, and that was officially your longest run you've ever ever put down.
2: Yeah, and man, it hurt a little bit for a few reasons. One is that I didn't, you know, have a relaxing weekend. I was tired. Got off the right. plane, travel. Uh, and then, you know, ideally you want to be running your long runs in the morning, not after you've been up all day eating and walking around all day. So starting at three PM sucked. It was cold enough that I wore gloves the whole twenty miles. Right. Uh that sucked. And man, oh, it was just man, that last three miles were a slog. Just a slog. I think what's an interesting point here is
1: to really, really emphasize that right now in your brain, you're trying to extrapolate, or you, you might try and extrapolate Monday's run to what the
2: marathon's going to be like, and they are not even close to the same thing. Oh yeah. You know? Well, I know just from uh, just you know from doing other races that the taper. Like I, I went into twenty tired. You know, right? We were still doing yeah. paces and a lot of runs. You know, I'm looking at that. I'm looking at that week leading up to the marathon. I'm like, oh my god, that's so easy. Yeah, all those miles the whole week. I've been doing those in one day.
3: Yeah, gonna you know,
1: knock that down. I will tell you that um, I have not been putting in as as many miles as you have. Uh, also, I'm not training for a marathon in three weeks. I've only got a half. Um, I can totally feel that when. I, if I'm not running, I'm at the gym though. That's the thing that I'm doing differently than I have in the past. In the past, if I wasn't running, I was just sitting on my ass. Yeah. But now I'm hitting the gym three, four times a week. And Sunday I could tell that the one thing I was
2: more than anything else was strong.
3: Yeah.
1: And I know that you've been doing a lot of that as part of your uh, work and that is really going to pay off.
2: Yeah. Although the last month I've been
1: slacking off. So, uh, you still got time. Get it we'll right see. back into it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, I've been, uh, I've been liking the, the, taper. Uh, the rowing machine, which is good because I get the, the legs in there too and the arms. So uh, I think I'll be okay. But whoo, man, that was a slog. I'm tired today. Oh, man. Did you, did you get a nap in? Did you get second breakfast? Oh, you can't get second breakfast. You ran at three in the afternoon. I know. Well, actually, that kind of sucks too because you, you have lunch and you're just a little, you've got too much food in you.
1: Well, I ran across one thing as well that I wanted to talk about. I found it really, really interesting, and we'll obviously link it to the show notes, but it's talking about fatigue and the brain. And the summary of the article is, your brain tells you you're tired, your muscles don't actually tell you you're tired. And the first basis of that is, you know, if your muscles are actually tired, there would be these chemicals that we could detect that would be the residue of having overworked the muscle that are not there that you think are tired. And I'm, I'm going to pull from the article here in just a second or here because uh, I, I just can't describe it any better than what it says here. So the brain is looking at all of these different things, like how far it thinks you have to run, how much it. Energy it thinks it has in the body left. And so, bases all these calculations, it will t- determine how many muscle fibers to recruit and the intensity of the movements that the body can sustain. And if the brain senses that we are overexerting ourselves, it will create a subjective feeling of fatigue that deters us from further exercise. You're literally talking yourself out of going. <laughs> And finishing, your body will do exactly what it can do. I mean, it is so much in your head that you have to go out there and, and fight through
2: that. You know what this basically says? That article?
1: That, that, that you really, yeah, your 20 miles yesterday really wasn't that hard. It was just, you're well, mentally yeah. weak.
2: Suck it up. But basically, that article is telling us that our childhood football coaches were 100% correct. Suck it up. Yeah, You can do it. You're, you're not, not tired. tired.
1: You haven't even puked yet. That's when the body tells you you're You don't tired. need
2: water. <laughs> and they were wrong there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's basically it. Our, uh, those Henri football coaches and PE uh, teachers were 100% correct.
1: It's a really, really cool read. I hope you really enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, th- just the approach that they have towards, you know, really focusing on how to be a better endurance athlete really is so much more in your mind than anything else.
2: Today's guest, Dave McGilvray, not only director of the Boston Marathon, but one of the first people ever to run across the United States and connect it to a charity. Actually, I think he was the first one to connect charity to running. Ran across the US when how old was he? He was in his twenties or something, some, you know, just an idiot. Running across, I'm gonna raise money for charity. And oh, the stories he has about people. Stories not only
1: from the people that he experienced on his run himself, but the stories from the people that he has interacted with as the race director for the Boston Marathon. This is a great conversation. He tells it better than we can. Let's get to it. Welcome to the podcast, Dave.
0: Thank you. It's great to be here, guys.
1: Absolutely. So we had a chance to uh, read through. You sent us a couple things that you might have done in the past and usually something really stands out as an uh, a a launching pad but there is so much in here in your background i think the best thing that we could really do to get everybody introduced to you is just kind of start at the start so if you don't mind just kind of picking it up when you first really recognized that running what running meant for you
0: sure thing so growing up in the boston area um you know it's very it's very sports minded, crazy, a part of the country. And as a young boy, I too wanted to be one thing and one thing only. And, and that was an athlete. I wanted to play second base for the Boston Red Sox or play for the Celtics or the New England Patriots. But unfortunately for me, I was short in stature. So inevitably I was always the last one cut when I went out for team sports. Or I was always the last one picked when my friends would pick sides. And as a 13, 14, 15 year old, that was quite devastating. I I learned a valuable lesson at that early young age about the three types of pain in life one's physical pain, which I've learned to overcome by training, Um, mental pain, similarly. But then it's that third one, which is the most debilitating and that's emotional pain. And to get the feeling of rejection at a young age was 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 pretty daunting. Uh I wanted to be an athlete, but no one else would give me a chance. Um, no I didn't have cancer and I didn't have the conventional illnesses out there in the world. And was I being full of self pity, maybe, but you know I I had a a goal in life and I wasn't being given a chance to accomplish it, but I took a different path and I started running because nobody can cut you from running. And Mm -hmm. I've run 150,000 miles since then. And I started, (laughs) you know, just setting personal goals, not to prove anyone wrong, but just to prove myself right. And that's how I got started. With my running career,
2: we're bringing you on uh, old crazy runners, but you're also a young crazy runner. We've had uh, people in the past who have run across America, but you ran across America at the ripe old age of 23. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Um, So I had heard about a friend of mine from Medford, Mass, who had biked across America from Medford, Mass, to Medford, Oregon, and. I thought, well, if he can bike across the country, I can run across the country. Well, that's (laughs) pretty idiotic because biking and running are a little different. But for me, it's all about earning the right to do something. And I wasn't thinking about doing it as a barroom bet. I truly wanted to do this. So I trained and worked real hard and studied and planned four hours for four, four uh, years to make this happen. And, um, and so I, I flew out to Medford Oregon and ran across America. But I was actually working at the time in the John Hancock tower in Boston. And I looked out the window and I saw Fenway Park and I saw a sign out in right field and the sign said, help make a dream come true support the Jimmy Fund. And the Jimmy Fund is the fundraising arm of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, mainly for kids with cancer. And it just a light bulb went off in my head saying, this is what I need to do. I have a mission. I need to combine my own personal goal with philanthropy, with giving back. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not going to make it across this continent on my own. I need there to be a greater purpose. So I went into the Jimmy Fund clinic to see what this was all about. And I saw those kids and I knew at the time that the battle that I was about to fight by running over five and a half million footsteps across America was in no way as difficult as the battle that these kids are fighting for their own life. And then I saw a sign in the Jimmy Fun Clinic on the wall and the sign said, God made only so many perfect heads. The rest of them have hair on it. <laughs> and I recognized then about turning a negative into a positive that these kids have more courage and more guts than all of us combined. And I need to do my part. So I chose to do it for the benefit of of the Jimmy Fund, And I went out and I, I hooked up with the Boston Red Sox because the Jimmy Fund was their official charity. So I flew out to Seattle and ceremonially started that run across America in the kingdom during a Seattle Mariners Boston Red Sox game, flew down to Method, Oregon, actually did the trek across the country 3,452 miles, averaging 45, 50 miles every single day, finished in my hometown of Method, Mass, and then did the final seven miles to Fenway Park where I ceremonially finished inside Fenway in front of 35,000 people, and ironically, the Red Sox were, again, playing the Seattle Mariners. Oh, nice. <laughs> and uh, I remember looking in the Seattle Mariners' dugout, and they were like, wait a minute. Did we see that guy? Oh, <laughs> how the heck did he get here? Right? He and, looks a little bit more beat up. Now. Uh, yeah, he was a little bit more beat up. But, but for me, it was, it was a pith- an epiphany. It was, a, it, was, it was a moment because I had finally realized I had become the athlete that I always yes. wanted to be. No. I didn't play second base right over there in Fenway. So if I can't play in Fenway, I was going to run. I was going to run in Fenway. And I did. And then that catapulted my career in in putting on events and other crazy endurance feats.
1: That actually reminds me, we had a a coach, Pat, from um, uh, the Human Race. He's trained people uh, to finish the Los Angeles Marathon. Uh, and he talks about the idea of being an athlete, and you have hinted at that you've mentioned it several times so far about defining yourself as an athlete, but based on performing in team sports and he said something that I think is uh so in line with what you're talking about right now, in that you know just by way of choosing to get out there and run, you are an athlete, and that running is one of the probably the only sport where you as an individual amateur person off the street can actually participate with some of the greatest and and you see this every time somebody runs in the Boston Marathon they're running alongside a meb at some point whereas you don't get that in any other sport so i'm kind of curious if you how you felt coming into fenway having proven to be an amazing athlete in your own right and yet looking out there at second base and still wanting for very obvious reasons, to be playing second base.
0: Well, it just brought to mind, um, you know, the whole concept of um, those who say it cannot be done should not interrupt those who are are doing it. And Mm -hmm. when I went out for my high school basketball team, I was the last one cut. My coach come up to me and he puts his arm around me and he looks down at me. Everyone looked down at me, by the way. Um, And he said, Dave, if you were five inches taller, you would be my starting guard. And I looked at the coach and I said, excuse me? If I was five inches taller coach, I thought it had to do with ability level, not not how tall you were. And so I challenged the center who made the team to a one-on-one to 21. And he was 6'5", I was 5'4". (laughs) 0.387 .387 <laughs> on a really good day and i beat him. and i threw up, threw the ball off the court and i walked away and i said i will never ever ever allow anyone to tell me i'm not good enough that i don't belong so i went home that night i put a sign over my bed and the sign said please god make me grow and i so i look back in retrospect you know i said well maybe he was on vacation or Answering someone else's prayer because he certainly didn't make me grow, but then again, did he? And I yeah. realized I grew in so many other ways. I grew right. morally and ethically and intellectually, and you know, I grew mentally and internally, because that's really where it's all happening—is who you are inside, not who you are physically. And again, that's yeah. why I started to run, and then became friendly with a lot of the runners in the area and the Bill Rogers of the world and Alberto Salazar's and Joan Samuelson's. And just as you were just saying, Nicholas, the whole aspect that I could participate with these folks, the best in the world at what they do. And I could be standing and running. Well, I wouldn't be running right beside them, (laughs) 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 Only for the first five steps and then say later, goodbye. (laughs) Um, But just the fact that you were you know, running, say, the Boston Marathon on the same hollowed grounds that people from all over the world ran on for the last hundred years was, you know, pr- pretty, pretty, a pretty amazing experience.
2: Coming to the end, when, when you finished your run across America and ran in Defendway Park, you you got an amazing amount of uh, publicity in the news and, and the fundraising. and. How did that spotlight on you change the trajectory of your life and and how running became part of that life and, and fundraising and charities?
0: Well, it's a pretty interesting story what happened next. Um, in life, I always say all of us experience what I call defining moments in our lives. Mm-hmm. When I got cut from the basketball team and the coach said what he said to me, That was a defining moment. When I finished my run in Fenway Park and 35,000 people stood and they kept clapping, The, the Red Sox said, come out of left field, run around, get to home plate, say a few words, and exit the field. I said, "Okay." i come out of left field, I ran around, the crowd was going so crazy, the players were going crazy, the media was going crazy. I kept running around and around and around. (laughs) They had to call the police on me, get this guy off the field, we got a game game to play. Um, It was a defining moment. So when I finished, um, yeah, I went on Good Morning America and I had all these different things. And all of a sudden I get a call from my boss who gave me the three month leave of absence To do this, run across America America, to raise money for sick kids, and he said, "You're coming back to work tomorrow." And I said, "I just ran across a continent. Can can I have a couple (laughs) of days?" Well, three days later, I got a termination letter. He 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 fired me, and I look back at that and I said, "Best thing that could have ever happened to me," because I got a degree in math. I was studying to be an actuary. Um, But it wasn't really in my DNA. It wasn't who I was. And by virtue of the fact that he dismissed me from following that path, I immediately decided to follow a different one. And the next thing I did was I opened up an athletic footwear and clothing store in my hometown at Smithford, Mass. And then I started putting on events to promote the store. And then I realized I like putting on events more than shoes on people's feet. And I helped create and pioneer, you know, the uh, mass participatory industry here here in New England, in America. I started doing triathlons and charity walks and, you know, and since then I've done over 1,400 events, directed, produced, managed, consulted on all over the world, in Asia, in South America, in the Caribbean, all over America. And um, it was interesting because at first people would look at me like, you really think you can earn a living putting on road races? I said, "Well, yeah. that's where you're wrong." And they said, "What do you mean?" I said, "I'm not just putting on road races." They said, "You're not?" I said, "No." And people used to ask me, "What do you do for a living?" I said, "I'm a race director." They said, "What do they do? Chalk marking the road, yell go." I said, "Well, <laughs> no. I, I guess you could say that." But now, when people ask me what do I do for a living, I said I said, I helped raise the level of self-esteem and self-confidence of tens of thousands of people in America. And that's what I knew back then, but that's what was going to happen. And when I did my run across the country, Runners World later, about 30 years later, said that that run across America, raising money for cancer research was the first time anyone had combined philanthropy with running, raising Mm -hmm. money for cancer research. And I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing that I might've been one of the first. And I dedicated my life to continuing to do that ever since.
1: So I'm I'm curious about a, a couple personal stories from you uh, related to that. One is, uh, is there a particular race or runner within a race that just kind of stood out as far as really representing the belief in themselves to get something done? And uh, I'd like to follow that up with, how has your work is, as a philanthropist influenced and improved your
0: um you as a runner well to your first question um you know a lot of times kids sort of idolize people um athletes i don't not to be cruel but i don't idolize anyone <laughs> i mm-hmm. respect them for what they have accomplished they've taken some god-given talent but they've worked really hard to elevate it to a level that's in a high champion champion level and i respect that you know but it doesn't mean that i want to be just like mike oh yeah i i I actually don't i want to be just like dave you know only because that's who i am like i I don't want to change that. I, I want to. I want to improve it, enhance it, uh, make it better. And so, a lot of the people who I truly admire the most are sort of the underdogs, and those are the ones who inspire me. So one day I get a call from this woman named Katie. I said, "Hi, Dave. My name's Katie. Can I come see you at the Boston Marathon office?" I said, "Sure." I had no idea who she was, so she came into the office. Because I'll see anyone, I'll talk to anyone, I'll respond to everyone. No one's any better than me, and I owe everyone the courtesy of listening to them, meeting with them, or responding to them, period. Because I wanted them to treat me the way I would treat them. She comes into my office, and she's in a wheelchair. I'm like, oh. And she goes into the conference room, and I walk behind her, and I look across the table, and my jaw drops. and Katie was 36 inches tall. And she said, I have a question to ask you. I said, what's that? She says,
3: can I run the Boston Marathon? I said, you want to run
0: the Boston Marathon? Yeah, I want to run the Boston Marathon. And I looked at her and I paused and I said, ask me me a difficult question. Hmm. She said, I can? I said, yeah, I can run the Boston Marathon. I said, yeah, you can run the Boston Marathon. She says, well, I have a caveat. I said, well, what's that? Is my marathon 26.2 feet? That's okay. Everyone, you know your game, your rules. Um, 26.2 feet. She trained like the Dickens. I mean, in her little walker and the mm-hmm. whole bit. And race day came, and she come out of an area in her wheelchair. I lined up barricades 26.2 feet long from the starting line, just down to the street a little bit, and she get out of her wheelchair in a walker, and I yelled, go. There were 30,000 people, helicopters going, media from all over the world, and here's little Katie doing her marathon. She crosses the finish line. I gave her a laurel and a medal around her neck, gave her a, a big hug. And the story goes, I run the Boston Marathon after everyone else. I'll tell you about that. But so nine hours later, I was running down the finish line on Boylston Street, stock out, and all of a sudden, the distance, I I just see one person waiting for me, and it's little Katie waiting for me. And I ran across the line. She, she put a laurel wreath on my head that she made and a medal around my neck that she made for me, and she looked at me and she says, ha, I beat you. (laughs) (laughs) And little Katie did her the Boston Marathon, the way she could do the Boston Marathon. She had 35 operations at Children's Hospital. And about six months later, she passed away. Hmm. But she accomplished her goal of running the marathon. These are the types of stories, and I can tell you a million of them, that really keep me passionate about doing what I do and helping other people. the chance like when she asked me can i run the boston marathon it was a no-brainer maybe -hmm. if she asked someone else they said well you got to qualify you can't do this and i'm like yeah there's always a way there's always a path
1: i just want to emphasize the importance of the role that you play in being that voice of encouragement and i mean this is a microcosm story that just really summarizes what you've done over the course of your career. And I I just, I think it is so incredibly important to recognize and to appreciate that that is your divining function is that
0: empowerment. And it is so, so important. And just thank you for that. You know, it's interesting. I learned in life um, that we all have an obligation and responsibility To help those who are less fortunate and the reality of that concept is that when you give you actually do receive a lot more in return you know when i do something good for someone i walk away feeling so good about myself and in the process i help somebody else it's a win-win so why would you not want to do that and and so um you know and i try to instill that in the kids more than anything i written three children's books over the last couple of years. The first one's called Dream Big because when I was little, I was little, but I had big dreams. And then I wrote a children's book running across America for obvious reasons. And then I just finished my third children's book called Finish Strong. And it's about my experience running seven marathons and seven days on seven continents just a couple of years ago. And In the back of those books, I challenge the kids. Um, I don't want them to read the book, put it down, and go play ping pong or something. I want, I want them to, I want them to be, you know, an an action, right? And so I have the Dream Big Marathon Challenge, and I challenge them to run 26 miles, to read 26 books, and to do 26 acts of kindness over. Mm 26 days or any period of time. 26 books, education. 26 miles, health and fitness. 26 acts of kindness, given back. And when they do that, and they fill out the form and send it to me, I mail them a a personal medal. And I have 1000s and 1000s of kids across the country doing this right now. And it it just reminds me of when I'm asked what the toughest part about running a marathon is, I always say the toughest part is signing the application, mm-hmm. is having the guts to make the commitment to do that. But then you have to earn the right to do it. And then you have to do the work. Then you tow the line, you answer the gun, you run the course, you cross the finish line, you get a medal and magic happens you go home feeling good about yourself. And there's nothing more powerful in the world for anybody than that. It's the very foundation by which we accomplish anything in our lives, is to feel good about ourselves. So I'm an advocate for people taking care of themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I always say to people in a room, you know who the most important person in this room is? And I'm like, I don't know who, <laughs> you. Yeah. You, yeah. you have to be, because If you don't take care of yourself then eventually you're going to burden someone else to have to take care of you for you you because you didn't do it and two is you know if you take care of yourself you put yourself in a position where you can help other people so it makes sense a lot of times when i used to go out for a run years ago i used to have this sense of almost like i feel selfish you know that i'm i'm doing this for me and now when i go out for a run i feel just the opposite it's unselfish because I'm taking care
3: of myself. Right.
2: So one of the phrases that you mentioned was a phrase that I've seen you use over and over again, and I'd love to have you talk about that in terms of how you put things in front of yourself to keep things interesting, but then also how you challenge other people to put things in front of themselves. And it's uh, something that I think only runners can do. And uh, it's it's your game, it's your rules.
0: So... When I, when I was 12 years old, um, there's this pond near my house, and I woke up that day and I ran around the pond just for some exercise, and it was six miles. And then I had the obligatory cake and ice cream during the day, my little mind works in crazy ways. And I said, "Well, I better go run, run off this cake and ice cream, so I did it again. So I ran 12 miles on my 12th birthday. I thought that was pretty cool. So when I turned 13, it was like what I do when I turn 12, I ran 12, so I might as well run 13 and then 14, 14, 15, 15, 16, 16. So last year I turned 66 and did 66 miles. And people say to me all the time, what the heck are you going to do when you turn 90? And I'm like, (laughs) well, first of all, All I want to be breathing, (laughs) secondly, get out of bed and I'm not really sure. I don't have to decide today what I'm gonna do 24 years from now. And I said, besides, it's my game. So it's my rule. I can change the rules anytime I want. In fact, the last chapter in my book, I wrote a book called The Last Pick for obvious reasons. And the last chapter in that book is changing the rules. And that's how we continually challenge ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't do today what I was able to do 40 years ago. Can I run 50 miles every single day across America again? it'd be a stretch. You know, I'm not too sure yeah. it makes sense to make that as my, my next challenge. But I can change the rule, right? I could do it different. I could bike and run, or I could run whatever. So I've always been an advocate of just, just do something. It's your life. It's your game. A job
1: rule so in staying in that theme of taking care of yourself, you also found a moment in your life when you actually had to really, really focus in on that yeah. uh, you uh, were diagnosed with uh I, I'm, I know i'm going to say it incorrectly but a coronary artery issue, and you ended up having triple bypass surgery, and uh, my mother had had that as well, and i didn't realize at the time that they literally take your heart out of your chest and set it on a tray (laughs) during that operation. And you came back from that. I think it's fair to say probably a stronger person. And I would kind of, I'd like to just get a moment to talk about how that influenced the way that you changed the rules from that day forward. Sure.
0: So You know, I've run 150,000 miles. I've run 160 marathons, run Boston 48 years in a row, done nine Ironman triathlons, run up the East Coast of America, run my age on my birthday. You get the point, right? So I've done all this silliness. So, with that, one gets the impression that they're somewhat invincible, (laughs) you know, that there's no kryptonite in my space and that. You know, I'm good. And I was out running one day, and all of a sudden I could feel some, you know, discomfort in my chest, and my breathing became labored. And I was like, what the heck is going on here? Did I eat something wrong last night, or get out of the wrong side of the bed, or tie my shoes too tight? Like, what's going on? Well, this persisted for weeks and weeks and months. And I said, time out. Something's wrong here. I better go get checked. So I went into Mass General Hospital. And they did all kinds of tests, echocardiograms, stress tests, EKGs, everything. And they all basically said the same thing. There's nothing wrong with you. I said, Yes, there is. I can't breathe when I'm running. There's something wrong. I said, You got to give me the big boy test, guys. You know, know, look under the hood. And so they gave me a CAT scan and an angiogram. And the CAT doctor walks in while I'm on the operating table and he says, There, 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 and there. And I said, There, what? He says, you have severe coronary artery disease. I said, no, really, what's going on? He goes, no, you have coronary artery disease. I said, how did I get that? I said, was it genetic? He said, probably. I said, you know, something else? He said, what? I said, I think it was self-inflicted too. He said, how do you mean? I said, you know, I broke some of the rules. What do you mean? I said, well, I always thought sleep was overrated. You know, I always wanted to get the most out of every day. I don't want to sleep away my life, so I... Probably haven't got enough sleep and stress, you know, the bombings in Boston and all this other stress in one's life. And I said, you know, and my diet, you know, I wasn't a junk food junkie, but I always felt if I went out for a 20-mile run, I could come back and have a little bowl of ice cream because I earned it. It was (laughs) my reward. And over 50 years, I guess it all adds up, doesn't it? He goes, yeah, I think it does. I said, well, I have another question for you. He said, what's that? I said, is this reversible? And he said, well, it depends. I said, depends on what? He said, depends on the person. I said, well, you're looking at him. I'm right (laughs) over here. He said, you, with your discipline, I think you can have an impact on your own illness. I said, well, sign me up. I changed everything on a dime, on a dime. I cut out all the bad stuff. I got some more sleep, blah, blah, blah. I got rid of stress in my life. And I hadn't done the IME and triathlon in 25 years. I called up the Iron man. I said, hey, is there a chance I can do the race again? And they said, well, we heard about your coronary artery disease, you're going to have to get a note from your doctor. I said, what? A, <laughs> a, a note from my doctor? I've never get a note from my doctor. They it's said- the
3: Sixth grade again?
0: Yeah. And they said, well, we don't want you going down in the lava field. So I went to my doctor, I, can I have a note? And he says, no. I said, why? He says, same reason. I don't want you going down on the lava fields. I said, well, what's it going to take? He said, we got to do another angiogram. I said, all right. We did it. And I had reversed my own coronary artery disease by over 40% on my own. Well done. And he said, yeah, you can go do Ironman. And I went back and I did it. And so I was just on the road to recovery and I learned a valuable lesson then. I learned that just because you're fit, doesn't mean you're healthy. And I always thought it did. I always thought it did. And that's where, you know, I feel like athletes and fit people can be the most vulnerable because Mm. they're thinking one equals the other and it doesn't. And we're, us fit people, we're in denial. You know, they feel something, (laughs) well, I'm gonna punch through it. You know, I'm, I'm a tough guy, right? Superman, I can push through this. Well, sometimes there's challenging pains and wanting pain. And you've got to be able to distinguish between the two because you can't beat a wanting pain. You can't beat that into the ground. It's gonna get you. And I said, you gotta pay attention. You gotta advocate for yourself. And I did. Well, the next couple of years, things were great. I was running up a storm. I was running marathons. I was running faster than I've run in 30 years. And then I went and did the World Marathon Challenge in those seven marathons, seven days, seven continents, That went pretty well. I was able to bang that out and I got back and all of a sudden I could start feeling some discomfort in my chest again. Went back for an angiogram and it showed that I had 90% blockage in my main artery. And I said, how the heck did that happen? You know, doc, I said, I thought i beat it. It Says you can't beat genetics. I said, you can't run away from genetics. And I said, okay. I said, well, what are my options? He said, well, we can do nothing, but you're gonna have to live a sedentary life. Cross Mm. that off. (laughs) Yeah. He said, we can stent it, but it's near your heart and it could be a little risky. I said, I'm not taking any risks with my heart. I only get one of them. So he says, oh, we can do open heart bypass surgery. I said, nah, I don't like that one either. He said, well, you run out of options. I said, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, let me ask you this. This this race in Boston I've run a few times, and it's six months from now. What do you think if I have the surgery? He gave me the best possible answer ever. He said, he didn't say, no, you can't run, Boston. He didn't mm-hmm. say, yes, you can. He said, I would be extremely disappointed if you couldn't do it. I thought, oh. And it gave me that four-letter word that we all need in our lives, especially right now during this pandemic, called hope. Gave yeah. me some hope that, well, maybe I can have the surgery, save my own life, but still keep my streak going and running the marathon. Yeah, a road race isn't more important than my health. I understand that. But this is, but it's important to me. You know, this is, this is what I've done for 75% of the time I've been on this planet. I want to do it. So I had the surgery done—open heart triple bypass surgery. So I get home, and you know, first thing I can do is walk a mile. Walk. I don't yeah. like walking. <laughs> I wasn't born <laughs> to walk, but I, that's what I had to do. Walk a mile. Walk two miles. Walk three miles. Walk jog three miles. Walk jog five miles. You know, eventually get myself in good enough shape without sacrificing the recovery of my open heart surgery. And I'm able to get out there and run my 47th Boston Marathon six months after open heart surgery. So for me, you know, I went through those five stages. We all go through with stuff like this. Number one was denial. Nah, this isn't happening to me. Then two was anger. You get really upset with yourself and everyone else around you. And then negotiating. It's like, uh, you know, can I maybe uh, you sure you're looking at the right charts? It's not somebody else's, you know, that kind of stuff. And then you go through a little depression. You know, it's like, ah, oh, woe is me, self-pity. And then you kind of put your big boy pants on and you go, I got to accept it. It is what it is. Make the best of it, make the most of it. So now after recovering from it, I've run seven marathons since, open heart surgery. I'm doing really well. And now my whole mission in life is awareness. You know, in Mm -hmm. Massachusetts they have a public safety campaign that says if you see something, say something. My campaign is if you feel something, say something. Yeah we have to advocate for ourselves and save ourselves.
1: You mentioned just how long you had that pain before you actually really aggressively went in. And you know, that could have been the window where you you lost your opportunity to really take care of it. So that is fantastic advice and you know, we talk about as runners the need to recognize the difference between being sore and being hurt. And you know, that's that's a moment where you really have to pay attention to your body beyond um you know, the aches and pains and, uh, seek out good medical advice. And and I'm glad you got the right doctor who basically said, yeah, not only can we make you better, but we expect you to
0: get back out there and do it again. And you you don't always get that, you know? So I was very lucky that he had the attitude that he had because it just motivated me more and made me realize that I should have this done
2: this would be a perfect time to focus on some of the, uh, quote unquote, other crazy things you've done running. Uh, so you just briefly glanced over it like it was no big deal, (laughs) but you did seven marathons, seven continents in seven days, which not only hard on the body, but logistically insane. Can you talk about that just a little bit more? Sure. So
0: (laughs) a friend of mine called me up. He happened to be the president of the, um, my Florida Marlins baseball team and he's a triathlete and a runner and said, Hey, ever heard of the world marathon challenge? I said, yeah. He said, you want to do it with me? I said, well, the entry fee is like $47,000. No, thank you. He said, no, no, no. I get sponsorship. We can figure it out. I-, I want you to come with me. I said, Oh, okay. Sign me up. And, um, you know, he got like 15 people together and whatnot. And that combined with other people from around the world, there were 50 of us who flew from our respective homes from around the world to Cape Town, South Africa, we met there. And then thus began our journey. And so we took a flight from Cape Town to Antarctica, and get off the plane, and ran six plus loops of a four mile track on the ice and the snow in Antarctica, ran a marathon in Antarctica, got back on the plane, flew back to Cape Town. Antarctica was about five degrees. Got back to Cape Town, it was about eighty-five degrees in oh six hours later. Get off the plane, and ran another marathon in Cape Town, South Africa. Get back on the plane, and then flew to Perth, Australia, twelve-hour flight. Great. Way to recover from a marathon, yeah. sitting on a <laughs> seat in a plane at 35,000 feet. I don't recommend it, but we had no choice. The plane was our hotel and ran a marathon in Perth, Australia, and then flew to Dubai in Asia, ran a marathon there, then flew to um, uh, Portugal, Lisbon, Portugal, ran a marathon there, flew down to Cartagena. Uh, in Columbia, in South America, ran the marathon there and finished on day seven, with a marathon in Miami. So for me, um, talk about earning a right now, I hadn't done back to back to back to back to back days of, you know, 20 plus miles for a long, long time. So prior to doing this, I said, I got to earn the right to do it. So one week about Five months before this, I went out, ran a marathon on Monday, and then came home, ran a marathon on Tuesday, ran a marathon around my neighborhood on Wednesday, then I ran a half on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and then ran another marathon, Boston Marathon course on Sunday. So I ran four marathons and three halves in seven days, and I said, I'm going to give it a go. Right? I I think I still have what it takes to bang out the distance. The tough part was more everything else was the rat race yeah. in between. It was sleep deprivation, mm-hmm. you know, eating the food on the plane, trying to recover in a seat on a plane 35,000 feet, making sure you didn't get blood clots and cramps and all kinds of stuff, right? So all of that and then you have to take all your luggage off the plane and then put it in, bring it all back and it was crazy, but it did it. So, yeah, seven marathons, seven continents, seven days. It was a gas.
1: There's a lot of parts of that that could probably stand out, but of the seven marathons, uh, I'm curious which one was uh, just had the most emotional impact for you. Oh,
0: Antarctica. Yeah. Easy. Have you been to Antarctica? I, nope. I, you know what? I haven't. Not yet. It's not on the way to anywhere. No. <laughs> not, well, not you know yet. what?
1: I hear their microbrew scene isn't all that hot.
0: <laughs> so the point is, is that how, what percentage of people in the world get to go to Antarctica and then of that, what percentage of them get the opportunity to run a marathon there? Right? right. So it was just surreal. Like you're running in the bottom of the earth, you know? Yeah. and. You know, lucky for us, I I wish I could say it was minus 50 and the wind was blowing 100 miles an hour, but it wasn't. (laughs) I trained for those kinds of conditions. I actually went up to Jay Peak up in the border of Canada and I was training up there to get my body acclimated to the cold, like 15 below zero up there. And I was running and running and running up there, you know, weeks before we took off because I was really nervous about the conditions that we could have faced in Antarctica. So I was really trained for severely cold weather. And it was ended up being like twenty-eight degrees. I'm like, it's colder <laughs> home in Boston than it is in the Antarctica. <laughs> I was both relieved and disappointed at the same time, <laughs> you know, but uh, and then of course all the rest of the the rest of the world was like 80, 90 degrees. Dubai was like ninety something. You know, yeah. Perth was in the high seventies, Cape Town was eighty something, Miami was in the eighties katahania was 90 something i'm like i trained for cold cold weather and it's six out of the seven races it's in the 80s you know so wrong move there <laughs> but antarctica was definitely like wow you know i'll never forget that experience
1: now were uh any of those at like some severe elevation changes i mean antarctica's you know, pretty low elevation. Yeah, all told, no, but.
0: no, we weren't at high. In fact, all of the courses that were designed for this were right on, pretty much on the ocean. So okay. there was, there was, there was no climbing involved in any of this. I, I think the intent was, you know, not to make make the effort of each individual race so severe that people would be dropping out left and right. What do you do with them? You know, it's like, send them home from Antarctica. You can't just get on the next plane. There isn't a next plane. Right. And, you know, we're all there as a group. So we, we had a timeline. We had, everyone had to be done with this race by a certain time. So we can get back on a plane to fly to the next site to begin the next one, because we only had 168 hours to do this. So if you had some people who were lagging behind, they were holding the whole group. Right, so yeah. they would have to be told you got to stop right now because we we got to get out of here, you know. So the the courses themselves, in my opinion, were relatively simple, but sometimes we started them at two in the morning or eight in the, or five in the afternoon. It just they said, "When's tomorrow's race starts? When we get there, you know." <laughs> There's no set like this is the time the race starts. It's because there was no yeah. such thing. We went through 13 time zones. I mean, there was no such thing as time. It was just one big 168 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So at each of these locations, was there a, um, like, an organized race official sort of thing? So you there was a set course and, and all that was all predetermined.
0: Yeah. Helping. So we would get off the plane, get on a bus, bus to the venue, and it was set up by a local organizing group you know, maybe five people. I mean, it's only 50 people and they're out and back, out and back, done five times, six times, seven times. So it was only like a two mile, three mile course done out and back four or five times. So it was relatively simple by design so that, you know, it it just, there was not a lot of complexity, which minimizes the risk of something Mm -hmm. going wrong. So, yeah.
2: And what were those uh, cutoff time usually? What, how, how long did people have they to were, complete they their pretty, marathons on average? Yeah,
0: they were pretty generous with the timeline. I mean, up, up to seven hours, I think. Okay. You know, so I averaged, not overly impressive, but uh, I, I was fine with it. I averaged four, 428 per marathon. So I, mm-hmm. I, I was within, every marathon I ran was, was almost within five minutes of the previous one. Like I was really consistent, which is what I liked. I knew, boom, 4:30, 4: 30, 4:30. whatever the time was, right? Yes. So it wasn't like one was 3:15 and another one was 6:08 or something. They were just all right the exact same times. So I was very consistent. In fact, what's interesting is, just like my run across America, when I started, you know, it was like it, it was a struggle to run 40, 50 miles a day, but my body adapted as I went along, And I actually, instead of breaking down, I was actually getting stronger. It's yeah. almost like someone said to me, how'd you train to run across the country? How did I train to do it? <laughs> I, I ran across the country.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> like, that, that's the training. <laughs> I
0: trained while I was doing it. And it's almost the same with this in a sense that I was yeah. getting stronger as we were going along because I wasn't, I wasn't hammering myself. I wasn't running so intensely that I was beating myself up. I was going at a relatively pedestrian pace for me So that, you know, I could wake up the next day. Well, not wake. Well, I could run another one within 24 (laughs) hours or less. You know, that's the whole thing. I was always running, always running for tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I was virtually never running for today. When you run running a marathon or any race right now, as soon as you get like five miles out from the finish, whatever you say, I'm going to give it everything I got. I want to cross that finish line and fall down and have nothing left in the tank. Well, we couldn't do that. We better have something left in the tank, or there won't be the next marathon. So, sh- a lot of strategy did take part in 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 all of this kind of thing.
3: Yeah.
1: So, as you talk about that training, I mean, you've ran enough, and you've done endurance, uh, uh, certainly more than enough times to know that how to handle your body's reaction to what you're doing. So, I, I'm kind of curious if you from a competitive standpoint, was it hard in those moments to, to pull yourself back or when did you finally decide to just kind of open it all up? And did you, did you run
0: hard on that last five miles in Miami? That's a great question. Cause I meant to throw that in, but you just prompted it. So I got to Miami and it was amazing because, um, when we got to Miami, my wife flew down to Miami. A few friends were there and We family from all the other runners were there and it was almost like, you know, that like we were coming home from the war, you know, (laughs) we get off the bus and everyone's hugging and kissing and it's like, I went, hey guys, whoa, 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 we got another marathon to run, let's not celebrate just yet, right? So we got one more of these puppies to do and it's hot out. And we started that marathon at two in the afternoon. So it was brutal out there, but. Interestingly for me the last 10 miles of the final marathon were the fastest 10 miles for me of the entire trip. You know, and and it makes sense um sorta because I knew I didn't have to do this anymore, so I could yeah. just drop it and drop it as much as possible and just really feel that exhilaration of I'm going to get this done, right? It's like running mm-hmm one marathon for me you know you run the first four five six miles and it's kind of like just getting a feel and warming up a little bit and you're just trying to get in the moment and then you know so you're i've done four i've done five i've done six and by the time you get to the halfway point you say to yourself once i cross over that half i will have less to do than i've already done right and so Mm -hmm. instead of counting up I start counting down. I only have 10 to go, or nine to go, or eight, you know. So you start playing that mental uh, exercise of just, you know, where you are at at the moment. And so for me with this, it's almost like when I ran across the country, the thrills, the biggest thrills I got is when it said, entering Nebraska. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) yeah, I'm in another state, you know, a whole (laughs) state, you know, entering Nebraska, entering Ohio entering massachusetts I was, i'm here i'm home i'm almost you know i still had like 150 miles to go but i felt like i was done right so everything yeah. in perspective everything's relative when you're when you're dealing with these kinds of things so i'd love to
2: turn the conversation uh towards kind of the pandemic how it has affected your businesses and races yeah. and when we think those are going to come back and then talk about how integral you've been in with helping with the vaccination process. And maybe start with, you know, where, uh, I'm sure you're very much in tune with the race uh, promotion community. How, how are these race organizers doing in the races? And, you know, when when do you think we're going to be coming back with in-person races and, and how healthy will these organiza- organizations that we've been depending on for uh, organizing these beautiful events that we do? How are they doing, and and what's that going to look like in the second half of this year?
0: So I've been doing this for 40 years, 1,400 events. Um, At the beginning of 2020, I had 35 signed contracts of events to produce. We were going to have a banner year. Life is good, full staff, consultants. Um, This was great. And I really thought our industry, because it was, I really thought it was bulletproof that nothing's Mm going to bring us to our knees. Nothing ever did. Even good times, bad times, recessions, anything, people turned to themselves and get out there and participated, right? So it never went flat. It never really did. Um, And then this thing came along. And one by one, every one of my events went over the cliff. And as they were going over, I was, like, I was to like, for dear life, hang on, right? Nope, they're going, they're going. And for me, I don't own any events that I manage. I used to, because I I owned them all because I created them. But then I get into more of a, you know, we're a hired gun kind of a operation where we handle the operations and logistics for other people's events, like the Boston Marathon or other events like that. So when they went, some of them went virtual. They didn't really need the boots on the ground guy. So they did the virtual and I'm like, hello, I'm over here. You know, I've been involved with your race for 20 years and all of a sudden I'm, I'm, I'm on the curb. And I wasn't full of self pity, but I, I wasn't feeling good about this, yeah. right? And so I said, again, put your big boy pants on. Number one is people are dying from this thing. People are getting sick from this thing. Okay, you lost a few road races, big deal. But it was a big deal in the world I lived in. And I said, But I, I gotta figure this out. I'm not quitting. So I started in the world that we live in now, started pivoting and I started saying, What's my skill set? Oh, I know it I know what we can do. So we started doing drive in movies, outdoor movies, we started doing outdoor graduations with our staff and parking cars and equipment and sandwich boards and barricades and road cones and all that kind of stuff. So we, we were kept busy throughout the summertime, You know, COVID testing sites we did. I mean, we just pivoted and we kept the pulse. And, but then the winter came. And when the winter came, all that went away. And I'm like, oh, now what? And I really thought that this thing was a 2020, okay, over the cliff, we're coming back in 2021, can hardly wait till 2021 comes. And then we towards the end of 2020, and we're looking at 2021 going, hey, guys, Mm. this doesn't look any better. (laughs) And it's like, now what do we do? And then, you know, the vaccine came out and it started rolling out. And then we got a phone call saying, hey, you know, we've been retained by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to open up two mass vaccination sites. We need logisticians. I didn't even know what a logistician was. Uh, (laughs) We need logistical people. Okay, I understand what that is. Okay, that's us. Uh, yeah, we need help to, ma- to manage this. If We're going to do 5,000, 10,000 people a day. We got to get them through the course. You, you get yeah. people through the course. You got to help us do that. I said, okay, fine. So that's what we did. So we opened up Gillette Stadium, and then we stood up uh, Fenway Park. And then just yesterday, we opened up the Reggie Lewis Center in, in Roxbury, outside of Boston, right there in Boston. And then we're opening up another mass vaccination site in two weeks. So we went from, and talk about feast or famine, we went from basically doing nothing to like 10 hours a day, seven days a week. And the beauty about it all is, I mean, I'm very, very fortunate to be able to do this because we're helping to save lives. We're helping to keep people healthy and we're helping to bring back our own industry. And we're going to be doing this for the next six months or more until we get everyone vaccinated. I mean, just think of the numbers, right? In Massachusetts alone, there's 7 million people. We're gonna do them twice. That's 14 million mm-hmm. people. We just hit 100,000 at Gillette Stadium two days ago. And you think, wow, that's a big number. we got to do 14 million. <laughs> no yeah. long that's gonna take, right? But at the same time, we're doing it. We're doing it. So it makes me feel good. And it's very similar to the marathon concept. The people show up, we sort of line them up, And then we get them through the vaccination site and then through observation and then sort of send them on their way. And the same phenomenon happens in the vaccination site that has occurred on the road race course, you know, that people get nervous and excited Mm -hmm. at the same time upon arrival. We have to like make them feel good, feel comfortable, whatever. Then we have to take care of them, right? We have to hand out the water and make sure of medicals there and you know, like a road race course kind of thing, and we get them through the system. And guess what, when they leave that building, they feel good about themselves. You know that, and the stakes are so much higher here. This, you know, a a road race is a road race, right? But this is their life. So, you know, we're very fortunate we're in a position to be able to do that. So when's road racing going to come back? Well, I don't think it's ever going to be quite the same as it used to be, at least not for a long time. There's so many different moving parts here. There's stuff like, you know, what's safe and what isn't safe. There's mitigation plans and everyone has a different take on that. What does that actually mean? What does social distancing mean? What does wearing a mask mean? There's the thing called permission. You know, we didn't lose our business. The business is still out there. We just lost permission to conduct it, right? Until we can do it safely. And whether that's vaccination, whether that's testing, whether that's a combination of vaccination and testing, whether that's distancing, all of it combined. Well, that's going to take a while for all that to kind of come together until someday we're all lined up like like sardines and able Mm -hmm. to do this again the way we used to do it. And then now you also have what's called the fear factor. And, you know, even if I can put on a road race tomorrow in my hometown, how many people are going to show up? And there's right. that school of thought that people are saying, well, a lot more people are running and biking and walking these days because of the pandemic. Yeah, but are they doing it in mass groups? No. And will mm-hmm. they want to? I don't know. And so you got some who are salivating to get back out there and start banging on the road, but then you got others who are like, eh, not so fast, right? I'm gonna, I'm not gonna be the guinea pig. I'm gonna wait this thing out and make sure the dust has really settled before I start putting myself back into that kind of an environment. So I don't know, right? And then you got the concept of virtual. So last year I thought virtual did extremely well. I was never mm-hmm. a fan of it. And then all of a sudden it became one because like, that's all we got guys, right? Yeah. So do this or do nothing, you know? Um, and virtual, a lot of races did really, really well, but now is there such a thing as virtual fatigue? And will a lot of people say, well, I'm not gonna pay 50 bucks to run around my neighborhood just to get a t-shirt, right? So. So maybe virtual does start to slow down in 2021. And I think 2021, we could potentially feel the pain of this pandemic more than 2020. We could. You know, two years in a row, it's like, whoa, if you didn't go over the cliff yet, you might now, right? And not to be pessimistic, but just be a realist, right? What do we need to prepare ourselves for? But I do believe that races are starting to come back, not the big ones. But the smaller ones only because putting on a race is all about two things: space, how much space you have, and time, Mm -hmm. how much time within which you have to do it. So the more space and the more time, the more people you can accommodate. So can we do a five thousand person race in our hometown? Probably not. Why? Because we need a lot of space. Spread this thing out, and if you send them off in twosies and threesies, it's going to take four and a half weeks to do it. Right. So you're not going to shut the roads down that long. So all these kinds of things are at play right now. Um, and I think those who are making the decision, whether it's a go, no go, whether it's the event itself, the medical committee of the event, a COVID committee, or local politicians, everyone's a little gun shy. They're like, well, I've always said with the marathon, like if it's 95 degrees, you know, you know do, you, do you have the race or not? My, my attitude is always, if you don't fire the gun, you don't, no one gets hurt. So in, in, in the one hand, it, it's easier like, I'm not firing that gun. Because I'm going to put all these people in harm's way, so I, I, I'm the only one that can stop that. Because if, if I say there is an event, you know, people are going to like. Well, if there's an event, I want to do it because I don't want to be one of these guys who's like, well, I'm a wimpy guy. I don't. I, I'm not going to do it. So it's up to the organization to be vigilant and to be smart about what they're uh, allowing to happen and not allowing to happen. So I don't see it coming back. Spring, summer—some events will, but not a lot. It's all a state by state mandate, anyways. New Hampshire's been doing races all, all last year. Other races in New England, other states in New England are opening up right now. Not Massachusetts at the moment, but it will. But it's going to be very gradual.
1: Yeah, our uh, favorite race is the uh, Hood to Coast Relay. I'm not sure. Yeah, oh, good. I'm glad you're familiar with it. Of course. And they've just recently put out notifications that they will be putting it on in 2021, and they've made some significant changes, compromises, yeah. I would say, to, to, to get it done. Uh, not the least of which is about 10% participation, yeah. which, you know, it's, that's a huge
0: kick I know. for them to, to, well, to lose that many people. Well, reduce field size, spread it out, minimize, yeah. if not eliminate, all the pre-race, all the post-race. I mean, you cross the finish line, they're going to give you a bag with a banana and a bagel and say, go home now no lingering no hanging out no beer garden none of it you know and a lot of races have to decide is it still best to still conduct the event under those terms or do we take another mulligan and just say listen just let's one more year. we'll just lay low let's get this thing over with and we're going to come out in 2022 we're just going to hammer everyone has a choice
3: yeah yeah they uh
1: took uh, I think it usually is a five-hour window of when they release the corrals of Get the Race Going, and they extended that out to 14 hours. See? Is that what the... Yeah. yeah. If you like can that, get permission
0: yeah. to do it, some can, some yeah. can't. Well,
1: you know, but they're not closing roads down. They're and not. Like, you know, to to your point, you know, there's a uniqueness to that race that allows them to make different Absolutely. changes. Uh, but it, the the broader point being that they had to make a significant alteration to the the race itself just to make it happen in 2021. I'm glad they did. Uh, I've got six more legs to chalk off, so (laughs) (laughs) I'm not getting any younger at that.
0: Yeah.
2: So uh, if, if you were a betting man um, you know, most, if we take, you know, the probably the majority of our podcast listeners are in that no man's land of in their forties and fifties and healthy. Right? They're, they're not 65 and older. Their they're spot in the vaccine line is not on the near horizon. Uh, as you've seen these rollouts happening and the speed, and I'm sure you've been paying attention to production and stuff like that, when do you think uh, people like Nicholas and I are going to be able to get our hands on the vaccine and, and be able to run in groups safely?
0: First of all, it depends on where you live. I mean, a big part of yeah. it, you know, so we stood up Gillette. And then I have a counterpart in Green Bay, who we put on the bell and run. It's a 10K. 40 years old, and um, he works for me. And he said, "That's a great idea. We're gonna, we're gonna stand up a vaccination site at Lambeau." I said, "Great. You know, here's how you do it, and blah blah blah. And knock yourself out. Whatever you need to, to help for help. We're here. Whatever. They can't get the vaccine, right?" Yeah. I, I don't know why I, I'm not into the politics of it. I, uh, you know, I don't know if it's the feds, it's the state, it's to this, it's to that. But it's all a function of somebody's got to produce the goods. We can get it into the arms and we can do it fast. We can we can probably at Gillette, at, if we got enough when, when we if if and when we open outside too and do drive throughs in addition to what we're doing inside, we could do 30,000 a day. You know, and just yeah. boom, 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 boom. It's a simple process when you get it down. But if we don't have the goods, you can't do it. So I don't, I'm not into, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would like to think that this is the number one, obviously, topic issue in the world today in this country. and And everyone's just, you know, putting the pressure on, you know, the White House and the state houses and everyone else. And so I think people get it now and and that it's gonna get better and better and better as we move along. Um I would like to think by, you know, folks like you it, you'd be able to get vaccinated sometime in, you know, April, May, right? Mm. I mean, I would think. You know, yeah, if not soon. And, you know, there's so many different phases and so when you you know, you get all the different comorbidities and you've got the ages, and you got healthcare industry, and you got teachers, and you got this and that, and, and they keep changing it all up. Now every day it's like, oh, by the way, the governor in Massachusetts two weeks ago said, which is fine, you know, but we we didn't get a heads up. So, um, seventy five and over, anyone escorting a seventy five and over individual to the site could also get vaccinated. Well. That doubled. our uh. You know, we need double the capacity because we yeah. drew, we only had appointments lined up for the seventy-five-year-old, not the person coming with them, right? So all of a sudden, at the last minute, adjustments had to be made and everything else. And and then what was happening is that there were people even on like eBay saying, "Hey, I'm a if there's any seventy-five-year-old person out there who wants to be driven to the yeah. site, yeah, I'm more than happy to pay." for the opportunity to drive you there so I can get vaccinated. That kind of stuff like a black market for the vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. It I it, it and it wasn't like I was looking at that going, I can't believe that's happening. I can't believe it's happening. I mean, why wouldn't it? People yeah. Are, yeah. some people are desperate, you know? They feel like they have to get this and they have to get okay. it right away. I get it
1: did you run into uh supply issues at that point i mean that would be a, a challenge i would think having to turn no you, you didn't have to turn no, anyone away
0: no because what 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 we what we as soon as we found that out we said okay that's okay but they have to make the appointment too so they're mm-hmm. taking up a spot if you're saying it's okay for them to make the appointment we can let them in but we we order the vaccine a week ahead of time right so Mm-hmm. What we get for delivery is all we have, so the last thing you want to do is book more appointments than you have vaccine, because people talk about creating a riot. You know, if you yeah, booked yeah. appointments and then people showed up and sorry, <laughs> we have no more today. Um, oh, man, that's those not, <laughs> not good.
1: five-year-olds. And we've,
0: t- we've nailed this every single day. We haven't had one dose left over. Every single day. That's awesome. Every single oh, day. well done. We've timed yeah. it and planned it and prepared it so that we're not pulling from the vials if we feel like, okay, we only have, you know, 232 more people showing up today. Don't draw from the vial. And then all of a sudden, now we have leftover, we have to use it in the next six hours. And then we're frantically calling people all over the place, first responders and all that, you know, that, that's a nightmare. But we haven't had one dose left.
3: Yeah.
2: That's awesome. All right. well, we want to we want to make sure you get out there and keep vaccinating people, so we don't want to keep you okay too long but but, what I would love to uh start our our end of this conversation with one of my favorite quotes from you and have you talk about that a little bit is uh the worst injustice to yourself is to underestimate yourself,
0: yeah I've always believed that that very quote the worst injustice you could ever do to yourself is to underestimate your own ability and And I see that all the time, right? I see, especially kids, not believing in themselves. And I just, and we need to figure out ways to get to, especially kids, and make them believe in themselves. And, you know, when I started thinking about, I have my own children's fitness foundation. And when I started thinking about that, my whole premise was the whole aspect, like I was saying before, is, it's all about self-confidence and self-esteem. Here's a quick little story. So so I get asked once to run a, a race inside of a maximum security prison. And they first asked Marathon at Bill Rogers. And he said, no, nah, I think I'll take a pass. And then they <laughs> asked me, will you want to come in and run against 500 inmates? I said, sure, why not? Like, what can go wrong? <laughs> so I went in there and there was about 50 of us lined up and all the other inmates. Standing on the sideline and someone fired the gun and off well, no one fired a gun in, in the prison. <laughs> someone yelled, go, and off we took off. And blah, blah. And the one thing, what's the one thing I said to myself in this race not to do? Win. Don't win, because mm. you're dissing them, right? And making them not feel too good. You have the open roads, they have nothing. They have this little track that dirt track that they built. So I'm in third place and I'm running and I'm running and all of a sudden the guy in first place drops out. I'm like, oh, okay. So now I'm in second place and I'm running and I'm running and all of a sudden the guy in first place drops out. I'm in first place. Defining moment. What do I do? Now all the guys on the sidelines are yelling at me and saying things that they're going to do to me that I can't repeat on this call here, Um, but I'm believing they're going to do it because they've done a lot worse to get in there. And I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? And then all of a sudden, I start hearing ping, 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 what's going on? And they're throwing rocks at my head. And I'm like, right, I'm not sure what to do here. And I said, if, if I don't win, they'll probably think I'm a wimp and beat me up anyways. And so it's a no-win situation. So I went for it, and I won. And I go to the side, and they all come up to me and go, hey, nice going. We were only kidding. I said, you were only kidding. You were throwing rocks at my head. And I just ended up befriending them. And I came back and put on races inside this maximum security prison for a year, a marathon, other stuff. I brought in t-shirts and running shoes for them the whole bit. And then people started saying to me, "Why why are you helping them out? And I said, well, my theory is this, that someday some of these guys are getting out. And I'd rather have them a little bit better on the way out than what they were on the way in. And guess what, all I'm showing them how to do is to run. But what that is doing is giving them self-confidence. And I think the reason why they're here is because they didn't have that coming in. They didn't believe in themselves. So they started living a life of crime. That's all I'm trying to do here. So, you know, that's how I believe it is for all of us. And I try to really, really push home the whole concept of believing in yourself that there's always an, another path. Um, one last story. So when I decided to run my first Boston Marathon, I was 17 years old, I was a high school senior, I hadn't even well, you didn't qualify then, But you had to be 18, I was 17. And I called up my grandfather, who was a supporter of my athleticism. I said, Grandpa, I'm going to go run that race in Boston. He goes, oh, they call that the Boston Marathon. I said, oh, well, that's a good name for it. I'm going to go run it. So he said, okay, uh, I live right near the course. I'll meet you at Coolidge Corner. I said, where's that? He goes, 24 miles. I said, okay, Grandpa, I'll see you at 24 miles. My brother drove me to the start. I took off. I'm running, I'm running. I got to 19 miles in the hills in Newton. Bam, down I go, flat out in the hills. I got taken to the Newton-Wellesley Hospital in an ambulance. My parents came, pick me up. I got home, I called my grandfather, no answer. Called him again, no answer. Finally, nine o'clock at night, he answered the phone. I said, Grandpa, where have you been? He goes, Dave, where have you been? I've been waiting for you all night. The old man goes by, the women go by. No, day. Street sweepers go by, no, day. I said, yeah, I, uh, I quit. He goes, you what? I said, I failed. He said, no, you didn't. I said, I didn't, what'd I do? He said, you learned. I said, what I learn? He said, you learned you cannot go along in life and set reckless goals. You had no business being in that, and you know that. I said, you're right. He goes, I'll cut another deal with you. I said, what? He says, now you train for next year. here's a novelty. Okay, I'll train, and I'll be there waiting for you. I said, fine. Two months later, he died. And I said, i got to do this. i got to do this. I turned 18, officially registered. I was doing 120, 130 miles a week. I was ready to go, and the day before the marathon, I got a virus, and my parents said, you can't run. And I said, I have to run. The newspapers are saying Dave running in memory of grandfather. And they said, You're too sick. And I said, Can you give me something that very few other people in life have given me? My parents said, What? I said, A chance. Because that's isn't that what all of us want and need in life? It's just a chance to give it a go. Yeah, I feel like garbage today, but tomorrow's a new day. You know, every day's a gift. Maybe I'll feel better. Okay, fine. So they drove me to the start, dropped me off. I took off and I I'm like, okay, they're right. This is awful. I had nothing in the tank. And I saw my parents at the halfway point. And there's my mother. And what's she doing? Crying. Why? Because that's what mothers do. And because she's (laughs) feeling more pain than I'll ever feel. Right. And then there's my father standing next to my mother. And what's he doing? He's taking pictures (laughs) of my mother crying. And Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I'm going to keep going. I got to the hills of Newton where I dropped out the year before. And I'm doing a survivor shuffle over the hills. And I got over the hills and I finally got to 21.5 and boom. Down I go again, twice in a row. So I want to be an athlete as we started off this conversation, right? I'm the last pick. I'm the last one cut. I drop out of my first Boston. I drop out of my second Boston. I mean, can you say loser? Because I sat in the curb with my head in my hand saying, you can't get the job done. Another defining moment happened. I turned around and I looked behind me, and right behind me on the Boston Marathon course was the Evergreen Cemetery. And that's where they buried my grandfather. And there was this tombstone right behind me. And that son of a gun said he would be there waiting for me. Now he wasn't there physically, but he was there spiritually. And he kept his end of the deal. So I picked myself up and I finished the race. First marathon I ever finished, first Boston, four and a half hours. And I said to myself, on that day in 1973, I was going to run this race every year for the rest of my life and honor and tribute to the lesson my grandfather taught me about earning the right and not to underestimate my own ability. And I have run that race every year now for the last 48 years. So these are lessons learned along the way. And People say to me all the time, all the things you've done, what's your best accomplishment? I said, no, that's a good question, but my best accomplishment is my next one. Yeah. What do you got for me lately?
1: Uh, well, those are very powerful and inspiring words uh, from somebody who, without question, has definitely earned the right. So, thank you very much for all of that.
0: Thank you.
2: Yeah, we can't thank you enough for today. And uh, what is, uh, what's next for you? What's that next thing you're looking forward <laughs> right. to?
0: Well, you know, the toughest part about today for all of us is the uncertainty of tomorrow. Yeah. So, it's really tough to truly plan. Um, we just got to. Uh, right now, I'm living the moment. I'm not planning too far in advance because I don't want to set myself up for failure and disappointment. So I'm just riding it out, trying to do good on a day to day basis, trying to help people, trying to bring my industry back. Um, it's it's tough to say. Well, I'm going to do this race or that race because they may not exist. Right, so. But I I have some things in the back of my mind that I I, I would like to go back to Hawaii one more time and do my 10th Ironman. I I got some other things I want to do. I want to run my 50th Boston next year. You know, so there are some, I want to write a a book on on my experiences running in and helping to run the Boston Marathon. I have a whole bunch of, (laughs) uh, you know, things, you know, it's funny. I get asked all the time, especially by kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, well, first of all, (laughs) What makes you think I want to grow up? But that's a good question. I'm not really sure. And then one day I was driving down the highway and I saw a billboard and I said, that's it. That's what I want to be right there. It had one word on it, accomplisher. That's all I want to be, an accomplisher. I want set goals, work hard, earn the right, accomplish it, check it off, and move on to the next one. That's what I want to do. Well,
1: once again, fantastic advice.
3: Thank you.
2: I think all of us want to do the same. So we wish you the best of luck with uh, helping getting everybody vaccinated and uh, helping everyone get back to the races that we love.
0: Thank you, Will. I've always said the comeback will always be stronger
3: than the setback. And such will be the case for all of us. Man, Dave is just an inspiration
2: kind of every single way we can look at running.
1: What I find interesting with uh and talk I mean so many things uh, were amazing but the idea of how he just knew this was about himself that he had to define who he was and he defines that every single day.
2: Yeah. And you know, I was just as we had turned the conversation off, you know, I was planning on taking the day off because I've been pushing myself a little bit hard and I was hurting and I was doing little baby whining inside of myself saying, you know, I can take the day off and now I can't, man, I got to get out there and run again today. Uh, I got to say, you
1: still got to take the day off you as a coach, you know, the importance of recovery. You have broader,
2: longer, yeah. larger goals. Well, I'm just going to do like today. a little three miler, just, just, you know, nice right. and slow. Um, but also the, the thing that, uh, he instilled again the thing that I think both of us are learning is that uh you know we've heard it time and time again is is that we can do much more than we think we can and not to underestimate ourselves
1: yeah and uh you know to channel to channel both of our fathers the uh, whether you think you can or whether you think you can't you're right uh his totally it epitomizes uh, everything that we heard from Dave today in that, especially once he decided the uh, question is, yeah, I, I actually can
2: and I will. So I hope that everybody takes away one nugget from this conversation, and that's just a little bit, is that, you know, uh, you out there, you know, you can do so much more than you think you can, uh, and... We need to keep putting those goals out in front of ourselves, which I think that we've done a good job this year as we finish one things like, oh, what's the next thing we can do? What's the next thing we can do? I think the final thing to make sure uh, all of us out there, all the listeners out there to take away is, you know, it's your game and your rules. You know, make up that game for yourself and set those goals and be responsible for hitting those and, uh, you know, get out there and, and put in those miles and and do what you need to do to make yourself a better person.
1: Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Old Crazy Runners. Take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends how much you love listening in.
2: And be sure to go by Strava and join the Old Crazy Runners Podcast Run Club because that's where all us old crazies hang out and that's where we encourage each other to keep getting out there, keep putting in the miles, and keep being old crazy runners.